If your Bible's open at John chapter 9, John chapter 9, we're going to look at the first seven verses. I wonder, do you have a favorite miracle? Um, this is one of my favorites, uh, and part of that's because uh, with my own eyesight problems uh, and knowing a couple of blind people growing up, this miracle and the other miracles where Jesus heals blind people just have always had a real appeal to me. I always thought about how utterly amazing uh, it must have been. And uh, I suppose in my own experience, I had a little glimpse of how amazing it is to get your sight back. It is an incredible miracle. Uh, and there's nothing else like it in ancient literature. A man who was born blind enabled to see. And if you were to read through the chapter, you'll find that five times it's highlighted for us that this man was born blind. And then in verse 32, we read, Nobody has ever heard of the opening of the eyes of a man born blind. It's stunning. We'll see something of that this morning. But it's not just, you know, John picking one of Jesus' miracles and telling it um, because it's a nice story. John picks only seven of Jesus' miracles and he picks them carefully. And each one that he picks, he sees not just as something amazing, but as like a little miniature of Jesus' whole mission. It illustrates something of the mission that Jesus is here to carry out. It's not just proof that he's God, it's a miniature of his mission. A little illustration of his great salvation. And each time, or not quite each time, but on the majority of the occasions that he records a miracle from chapter 5 onwards, chapter 5 and 6 and now in chapter 9 and then in chapter 11, those miracles become the, the starting point for a whole discussion in that chapter. So there's the... the feeding of the 5,000, and then there's a whole discussion about the bread of life. There's the healing of the man at the pool, and that leads to a whole set of interactions with the religious leaders. And here we have Jesus uh, healing the blind man, and the whole chapter is about blindness, whether it's physical blindness or spiritual blindness. And John picks this miracle because he sees a parallel here between the man who's blind and all the people around Jesus who are spiritually blind. And we want to look at this great miracle this morning under five headings. You have them in the handout. Uh, first of all, a great need. A great need. This man is blind. Blind from birth. Just think, he's never seen the blue of the sky. He's never seen the rich reflective blue of the Sea of Galilee reflecting the, the sky's blue. He has never seen the sun rising or setting on the hills around Jerusalem. He hasn't seen the, the flowers blooming in all their rich and magnificent colors. He hasn't seen a smile on somebody's face. He hasn't seen the sparkle 
in a child in a child's eye. He's never seen it. Think how hard that must be. Few things are more pitiable or draw out our pity, I think, more than than somebody who's blind. You know, we see their sightless eyes, uh, often um, a a milky white as cataracts have formed and and their vision, uh, their eyes are completely functionless. Or we see them staring blankly. My heart always goes out when you see a couple of people around Letterkenny with white canes or white sticks. And particularly because they're, they're young people. You think, mm-hmm. how sad. Well, here's a man born blind. And John sees in this a picture of our world where people are born blind. Here's a blind man, but he's living in a world of blind men and women. People who are blind to spiritual realities. Blind And here's our great need. We're blind, we're born blind to truths about God, about sin, about salvation, about grace. We're staggering round in the dark um, like a blind man near the edge of a cliff. And you can imagine him and you you can see him in your mind's eye. He's he's got his cane and he's, he's feeling about in front of him. And you can see the danger he's in. And then maybe his cane falls out of his hand and you think, no. And you can see him moving closer to the edge of the cliff. You think, would you come back from the edge of the cliff and you want to intervene? Well, we live in a world of blind people walking near the edge of the cliff of eternity. Ready, or not ready, but about to fall. And they're not ready to meet God, to fall into God's presence. And they walk about, and worse still, there are blind people who think they can see, Jesus says to the religious leaders. You know, you think you can see, but you're blind. And imagine there are people walking about this clifftop, and they're not walking carefully, aware that they're blind and and trying to feel their way around. They're walking as if they can see, and they're striding all over the place, full of confidence. And there's a cliff there. And they're in grave danger and yet they think that they're in control of everything. What a great need. What a great need. I want to see a great mistake then. A great mistake. The disciples ask a question in verse 2. Who sinned? Who sinned? There's a common belief that suffering equaled punishment. That if you were suffering, you must have done something wrong, and God was punishing you. Suffering came because of sin. The rabbis said there is no suffering without iniquity. And the disciples want to draw a straight line between Jesus, or not between Jesus, between this man's blindness and some sin that was committed, and say, aha, that's why he's blind. That's why he has this disability. That's why this trouble has come to him. And Jesus won't let them do it. He says, no, that's not what it is. He says, neither his parents nor this man sinned. They thought, well, maybe, maybe he had sinned in the womb that he was born blind. Or maybe his parents had done something sinful. And this was God's judgment. And Jesus says, no. All suffering is here 
because of the sin of Adam and Eve. So suffering does have a connection to sin. Some suffering is here because of individual sin. Somebody uh, abuses uh, alcohol and it causes uh, cirrhosis in their liver and it causes them pain and shortens their life. Well, that suffering is due to the abuse of something. Uh, Or somebody drives recklessly and is involved in a car crash and is paralyzed. That suffering is directly connected to wrongdoing. But much suffering is simply because we live in a broken world. Much suffering is simply because we live in a broken world. You can't always, you can't even often draw a connecting link. And we need to emphasize that because all sorts of people make that mistake. Uh, Sometimes people who aren't Christians uh, wonder, well, why is God doing this to me? Is God punishing me for something? And sometimes they, they turn away from God rather than turning to God because of it. Or sometimes Christians uh, say hurtful things to other Christians who are suffering and make it sound as if there's some flaw in this Christian that has brought about this suffering and if they had more faith, they, this would go away. That's a great mistake. And that's one that Jesus corrects the disciples on. And he says something that is particularly helpful. And that brings us to our third great uh, statement. Uh, There's a great purpose. There's a great need. We're born blind. It's an incredibly serious blindness. There's a great mistake that the disciples make about thinking about suffering. Thirdly, there's a great purpose. Chapter 9 helps us live in a broken world. It helps us live in a world where people are born blind, where people are born with disabilities, where people are born uh, fine, but disease strikes later in life. And what are we to say to people when they say, why did this happen? Is God punishing me? Well, we say we don't know why this is happening. If we don't know why, we just say we don't know why. And and Billy Graham once said something really helpful. He said, look, trouble can either push you to God or away from God. If we let it push us away from God, we will never find any answer. If we let it push us to God, we will find an answer eventually. And Jesus says here in verse 3 that suffering has this great purpose. He says, This happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. This happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. God has permitted suffering to mar his masterpiece of creation and humanity, but he will not be thwarted. He will not be denied. The brokenness and suffering will bow the knee to the work of God, to the glory of God. And if we allow our suffering to push us to trust God and to keep trusting God, we will see God work. Whenever I was going through that 
that period of, of uh, eyesight trouble. One verse kept coming back to me. His strength, or God says, my strength is made perfect in weakness. And Paul goes on to say, therefore I will boast all the more in my weakness, for when I am weak, then I am strong. See, there's, there's aspects of God that we can only experience. There are glories of God that can be experienced only in suffering and difficulty that allow the work of God to be seen by us and by others. And God has a great purpose in our troubles and in our struggles. Someone might say, well, that sounds like God made this man blind just so that he could show off his own amazing abilities. Well, let me give two responses to that. Does God bring suffering into our lives just so he can show off? No. Because of Genesis chapter 3, suffering and brokenness is the canvas of life. God said there would be decay and disease and sickness and weeds and thorns and thistles because of disobedience. And that's the canvas of life. And that's the canvas on which God works. Suffering mars everything. But what we see here is that he is able and will display his glory in any life. He doesn't give a pass to his people so they get out of suffering. Nor does he avoid hard cases and say, well, actually, I can't do anything about that. This is the arena in which God works and displays his glory. And it allows us to see things about God that couldn't otherwise be seen. And the second consideration is that God doesn't stand disinterested and distant from this. He is not like, you know, imagine some twisted surgeon, plastic surgeon, who, who slices up somebody's face like this and goes, now, now do you think I can fix it? Do you think I can make them beautiful again? Oh, let's make it harder. Is that, that's not how we're to think of God. Showing off his abilities. No, no, no. Because we know that God steps into the brokenness and takes on human form and flesh and blood and bones so that he can suffer, so that the work of God might be displayed in him and the glory of God might be displayed in him, so that we can see that God is glorious. He doesn't say, watch me as I use you as my guinea pigs. He says, no, 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 trust me. Because I will suffer so that you can know that I am glorious. I will suffer so that you can see my glory. So that you can be made perfect again. And we can look at the cross. And we can say exactly what Jesus says here. This happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. Is that not astonishing? That before God asks you to trust him in your struggles and in your suffering and with your, the brokenness of your life, he says, look, 
I'll prove to you that suffering has a purpose, a glorious purpose. I'll do it at my own expense before I ask you to say, this has happened to me so the work of God can be displayed in my life. God says, I will show you myself. This has happened to me so that the work of God might be displayed in my life. Does that not show us that we can trust him? That we will see his great purpose for it all being worked out. One of the hardest things about suffering is a sense of purposelessness. Our God says, trust me and you will see my glory working out in it. Matthew Henry, the, 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 the old commentator on the Bible, wrote this about this miracle. He said, the sentences in the book of Providence, God's dealings with us, said, the sentences in the book of Providence are sometimes long. Now that's a bit of an understatement because the Puritans were famous for long sentences. Sometimes they were 16 or 17 lines long, you know. Uh, and Matthew Henry says, the sentences in God's book are sometimes long. And then he says this, and you must read a great way before you understand the meaning. You must read a great way before you understand the meaning. But Jesus is saying to us here, there is a purpose. There is a meaning. And here's wonderful encouragement. Encouragement for those who are going through difficult times. You can say to yourself, this has happened so that the work of God might be revealed. Encouragement, when we look back maybe to when before we became a Christian, and we look at things that we did, and we look at where God saved us from, and we, we might feel, I wish that hadn't happened, and we do wish it hadn't happened. But we can say, this happened, that the work of God might be displayed in my life. This has happened, that the work of God might be displayed in my life. This is the backdrop against which the great work of salvation is displayed. The great work of God's providence is displayed. The great work of seeing that God will give his people what they need is displayed. And why is that? Why can we have this encouragement? That brings us to our fourth point. We have a great Savior. We have a great Savior. There's a great need. That need forms the backdrop against which God's glory and God's salvation can be seen. And more of God's glory can be seen because of sin coming into the world. We would never have known the length and breadth and height and depth of the love of God for us if sin had never come into the world. We wouldn't have known that he would go to the furthest extents of death on a cross to demonstrate his love to us. We might have thought, well, of course he loves us because we've never done anything wrong. But to know that we have been the worst of sinners and that God would take human flesh and go to the cross for us, that could only be seen. The magnificent glory of God can only be seen against the dark backdrop of sin. And we see the greatness of our Savior. We see it, the greatness of our Savior at the cross. We see the greatness of our Savior in this miracle. 
And it gives us encouragement to trust him no matter how broken the situation is. This is simply an astonishing miracle. I've spoken about it before. But let's start even with the actions. The actions are bizarre where Jesus spits in the ground. Uh, an action that was forbidden on the Sabbath day, and it's the Sabbath day. And maybe part of it is he's, he's provoking the Pharisees to see, to see, will they rise to the bait? And they do. They're so incensed by this breaking of a man-made law, not one of God's laws, but a man-made law, they can't see that the prophesied giver of sight is here. They even say no one has done anything like this. But they they don't think, oh yeah, well this must be God. Uh, And so Jesus is is provoking them and and, uh, causing them to display their blindness and their opposition. But maybe too he's he's having it act as a parable to the man. You know, he wants him to put this mixture of mud and clay in his eyes and then go and, and to wash the barrier, the blockage away. And as he washes the blockages away at the pool of Siloam, can see. He can see. But come with me to, 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 to grasp the astonishing wonder of this miracle. He, imagine him, he's tapping his way, perhaps with a stick, or feeling his way around the Jerusalem. He knows every inch of the walls of Jerusalem, like the back of his hand. And he feels his way around Jerusalem, and he comes to the pool of Siloam, and he comes down, and he feels his way towards the water. And he puts his hand in the water and he takes water and he rubs it over his eyes. And he he opens his eyes and light floods in. He looks around at the water. And he looks at the walls and the buildings and the people. And the amazement and the joy. I remember whenever the the doctor blasted away the last fragments of a very dense cataract. And I had gone to to that appointment not able to see clearly. And he said to me, what can you see? And I couldn't have seen his eyes and nose and mouth when I sat down. And he said, now what can you see? And I said, I can see the pores in your skin. I was like, wow, this is incredible. This man is completely blind. I had navigational sight. Imagine the wonder of it. But what's even more amazing, I was reading a book about a man called Mike May. Mike May was involved in a chemical accident when he was three and blinded. When he was in his, I think it was his early 40s, in 1999, he took on a procedure that was highly risky, but may, able, may have enabled him to see again. And it was a stunning success, the operation. But what happened was that he found out that though his eyes were perfect, here's the key thing, his brain had forgotten how to process the, the visual input. He would look at something and he would see it as if it was a two-dimensional flat pattern of colours and shapes. And something incredible happens as we grow and as we develop as children. We, our brain records and catalogues shapes and images and three dimensions. So this is a face and that's a face. And that's a face, although it's different from this face. And that's a face. And this is a face with the nose on the other side. You know, our brain puts all that together. Uh, Our brain 
puts three dimensions together. So that's a chair and that's a chair and that's a chair. So that when we look at it sideways, our brain knows it's still the same chair. Uh, Mike May talked about driving along in a car and he looked out the side window. And he saw, said to his wife, that's a car, isn't it? He said, yes, that's a car. He looked out the front window and he pointed at the, the thing ahead of him. He said, what's that? He said, that's a car too. He said, well, it looks very different from that one. He said, you're looking at the back of it. He said, what? But all of that understanding of three dimensions is built in our brains as we see from childhood up. Not only that, but for somebody born blind, the, the eyes don't just need healed. The optic nerve needs healed. And the neurons in the brain that are associated with sight, they have been reassigned by the brain to, other, to do other things, to help the sense of hearing, maybe to help the sense of balance. They do other things. They've gone. They're, they're not there anymore doing their job. And so for Jesus to heal a man born blind, he doesn't just need to heal the eyes and the optic nerve. He needs to reassign the neurons in the brain that are doing other things back to their original purpose of sight and reprogram, reprogram them for sight. And he then also needs to fill the brain with an understanding, with a, like a catalogue of images so that the man can interpret what he's saying. Mike May uh, would be walking along and he would fall down a flight of stairs. Because his brain just saw it as lines on the ground. He didn't know that it was a flight of stairs. He would walk into a wall because he didn't realize that it was standing up in front of him. He just thought, well, it's, it's there. You know, that's a thing. Uh, so the fixing of his eyes wasn't simply enough. Whenever I read his story, I was completely blown away by what Jesus does here. It's an incredibly complex thing that happens, very simple. Jesus just says to the man, go and wash your eyes. And Jesus performs the miracle. Everything is simple in his, sort of in his approach in that sense. Oh, what's complex to us is simple to him. And does that not fill us with encouragement as we think of the brokenness maybe of our lives, the brokenness of uh, lives of people around us, the hurts, the struggles, the pains. And we think, you know, he's got a great purpose in this. But, and I, can, I know I can trust him, but really, is he powerful enough? Absolutely. He can reprogram brains that have never seen. He can fill them with understanding so they can compute what they're seeing and understand is landing on their retinas. He can do that. He's an incredible saviour. A great saviour we see here. And does that not encourage us? It encourages us to trust him to work in whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. That gives us hope amidst brokenness. But more than that, that gives us encouragement whenever we look at people around us, because he can cure the blindness of the heart with all its complexities, with all of its oppositions, with all of the hurts that people have been through that make them not even want to be interested in God. All of the multi-connectedness of the, the blindness of the human heart, Jesus in a moment can heal it and bring sight. Do you see that? He's the giver of sight. He's a great saviour.
And so as we look at a broken world around us, we can trust him. We can trust him for ourselves and we can expect him to open the eyes of others so they can see the great glory of God. And finally, that means there's a great urgency. A great urgency. Verses 4 and 5. Jesus recognizes his time is short. He says, As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus recognizes that his death is imminent. That's what he means by night. He doesn't want to miss opportunities to be about his father's business. But note what he says in verse 4. We must do the work of him who sent me. We must do the work. We're to follow his example. This is a broken world. And we are called to be lights in this broken world. To actively radiate light in dark places. If we believe what Paul writes in Ephesians 1.22. That God appointed Christ head over all things for the church. That means that brokenness and hurt and difficulty of the lives of people around us are that way. So that we can be the light in those places. This happened so that you are where you are. You work where you work. You're amongst the people you're amongst so that you can be the light. So that the work of God might be displayed in you and by you. And we've only got limited time in which to do it. We're not here forever. The night of our passing will come. And that light that we shine will be extinguished. And that actually also means that the unbelief of people is an opportunity and not simply opposition. It's an opportunity and not simply opposition. Because if we're the light of the world, radiating Jesus' light, he has the ability to give sight to the blind. Not just hope to people in difficult circumstances, but sight to the spiritually blind through the light of his people. And so rather than being discouraged by the opposition, we can see it as an opportunity to be about the work that God has given to us. Robert Louis Stevenson, the author, when he was 12, was watching a lamplighter in the streets uh, outside his home. And he was asked by either his mum or dad or the, 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 the nurse that was watching over him, the, you know, what are you doing? And he said, I'm watching a man cut holes in the darkness. That's what we're called to do. We're to be men and women and young people who cut holes in the darkness by shining the light of Christ, by glorifying God in our lives, by our speaking, by our acting, by our living for him. We shine and a miracle happens. He can open the eyes of the blind. But we've only got a limited time in which to do it. So let's seek to live 
for him in this dark world and to bring light into it so that the blind might see because our Savior has astonishing power to transform and to bring light into dark places. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for our wonderful Savior. And as we see the incredible complexity that lies behind what seems on the surface a very simple miracle, we marvel at how you work and orchestrate whole networks of things in the brain. And that's just a little picture of how you orchestrate whole networks of providences and circumstances and events and conversations in the lives of people all over this world to bring glory and honor to Jesus, to bring light into the darkness, to bring hope into despair, to bring sight where there's spiritual blindness. Father, help us. Help us in these two ways. Help us amidst our own struggles to have hope and to say this has happened that the work of God might be displayed. Help us to have hope and confidence in the power of God to do this. And help us too, as we live amidst a world of blind men and women, to be Christ's ambassadors and to shine light into their darkness and to look for him to work that miracle of sight. We pray that we would see him granting sight to more and more people around us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.